0: Welcome to Who You Callin' Crazy. This is a unique mental health podcast. We are erasing the stigma and elevating and normalizing dialogue around mental health. Of course, we'll be sharing practical therapy tips, but most importantly, we'll be diving into the stories and vulnerability of people you know or want to know. I'm your host, Juliette Cunley.
1: Dr. Jillian Lambert. I am the Chief Strategy Officer for Aconto Health, which is the EMILY Program and Veritas Collaborative, and a number of other new exciting things that we are going to be talking about soon. I'm a dietitian by training. I have a PhD in nutrition and epidemiology, and I love working in the field of eating disorders. It's my passion and my career and what gets
0: me really energized. I love it. So we do in my practice, a lot of work with uh, eating disorders, body image, and that's where the bulk of, you know, my experience has come from. I started my internship at an eating disorder treatment center in grad school. And so just and worked in several levels of care as well. So I'm just, so I'm thrilled to have you on here. And so we can dive into it a little bit before we officially started, you and I were talking about how people are just, the struggle is even more intense for people uh, now during the pandemic. What are you seeing? It is. It's so intense
1: it's so much more intense. Uh I think it's the, when I really think about what's so different, so much is so different, right? But it really kind of comes down to the increase in anxiety and isolation Mm -hmm. that the pandemic brought us, unfortunately, and the degree to which we lost connection Mm -hmm. in person. And then the subsequent sort of connection or lack thereof messaging that we found on social platforms that's sort of all combined together with what we already know of the genetic predispositions that some people have to eating disorders just made it all worse, mm-hmm. just made it all worse. The world felt far less safe. We felt way more isolated, way more anxious and
0: eating disorders got even worse. Yeah. I and mean, we're definitely seeing it in our practice. I know you guys are in your centers too. Yeah. And so, I mean, what are you willing to share with us too, just to kind of about your personal journey? What landed you in this field and how did you find yourself being interested in this? Well, I think kind of
1: by um, happenstance, but here I am and I think it's where I'm supposed to be. So I had an eating disorder in high school and college. I had an eating disorder for seven years. Back in the day when treatment was terrible and inaccessible, if there was treatment and nobody knew really much about eating disorders and people said a slew of very unhelpful things to me. And I'm really grateful that I survived that and really grateful for the bits and pieces of treatment that I had available to me. I had no intention of going into eating disorders that, you know, I know many people have a personal experience and that's sort of, they're like, I'm going to go do that. I didn't even know there was a thing to go do. (laughs) based on my treatment experience, really. And so once I was well and I was in graduate school after completing a biology degree, I thought I was going to go to med school, I decided in my sophomore year that I didn't really want to go to med school for a slew of reasons that were a little difficult for my parents to digest (laughs) after a life of, you know, an expectation for the past, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever, 18 years that I would be a doctor. I took an aerobics instructor training class in college, which sounds a little goofy to say out loud now. I did step aerobics (laughs) in my dorm lobby. Yes, Um, you did. I did. And I had a great, you know, great attendance, but there was a nutrition unit in that course. And I was captivated by this nutrition. Nutrition thing. It was like the right amount of biological science that I really got jazzed about that made me think I wanted to be a doctor. And this aspect of behavior change and counseling and thinking about our bodies in a different way. And I was just really captivated by it. So I told my parents, you know, I don't want to be a doctor. I don't want to go to medical school. I think I want to go to graduate school for nutrition. And they at that point were like, what's that? And what do you do with that? Mm -hmm. And then the the real kicker of like no you don't really want to do that you only want to do that because you have an eating disorder yeah they're like no 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 I don't think that's it I get it I yeah I, I tried to see that perspective but I just really love this nutrition thing so I pursued a, a graduate degree in nutrition and I think it probably took them I don't know probably fifteen more years to really figure out what it was that I did
0: this is um, actually a thing this is happening. yeah
1: it's, it's, it's <laughs> a thing you can do and so I got a master's degree in nutrition and then part because I really love school and I love learning and I wanted to know everything that I could possibly try to learn. I also got a master's of public health and then I got a PhD. And so I, through that course, I of education. I kept running into people mm-hmm. who facilitated me learning more about eating disorders and really kind of pointed me in that direction during my dietetic internship, which was between my first and second master's degree. I did my internship at the University of Minnesota that had an eating disorder program. At that time, it was one of the few programs anywhere in the country that had an eating disorder treatment program. And everybody else in my internship was kind of afraid of the eating disorder unit and didn't really know what to do there. And I walked on the unit and I was like, oh, I get this. Yes. These are my people. This is my space. I get it. Yep. And so I was really pretty captivated by that. And it and was at that point I'm like, Oh, there is actually treatment that's developing and there's a thing I could do. And so yeah. I continued on with my education. And then in some of my early career opportunities, I was able to start eating disorder programs because I was literally the person who knew the most of like, okay, this is at a time when having an eating disorder for seven years And having a little bit of training was the most anybody knew. So I just kind of was in spots that I could grow and flourish and and learn a lot. So really started my career and then never looked back. And I've worked in eating disorder treatment programs and helped build them and start them and grow them and move them and uh, expand them ever since. And have worked as a clinician the majority of that time as a researcher. And I, Found it's just my place. So yeah. I found it started by accident, but probably not.
0: Right. Well, that's so amazing to be on the, the forefront of it. So, you know, for people listening, there are so many myths about eating disorders, as you and I know. And one being that people don't really understand that it's really not about food. It's about managing uncomfortable emotions, you know, all those things. So, what are you aware of now for you? If you're willing to share like what yours was about. <laughs> Oh that's
1: probably a whole other long podcast but I think mm-hmm. that I think it's really fascinated me as both a clinician and a researcher and even a, a you know somebody who thinks about treatment programs I think that deeper understanding we have of the biology of eating disorders combined with the understanding that we have and continue to have around the, all of the experiential, environmental, social, whatever word you want to use Mm -hmm. impacts on people that we really knew only a little bit about before, but now we really understand a lot more that really our genetics set us up to have brains that are wired in some specific ways. And they're all good ways. There's not good or bad. Some people are a little bit more impulsive. Some people are a little bit more planful. That's just how we're wired. And we can shift those a little bit, but we have a lot of these temperament traits that are sort of who we are, right? And that make us the delightful humans we are with the diversity we have. And eating disorders really end up happening to some subgroups of those temperament trait holders, right? And so I think that that's really part of the fascinating piece that, that eating disorders, aren't really about food, they're not about food until the food shows up and then they're all about the food, right? And they're all about the response to the food and the anxiety and and everything else that goes along with it. And so I think it's this, for me as a a clinician and as a person with lived experience, it's this fascinating combination of really a brain that's comfortable operating in certain ways, getting taken advantage of by a slew of other things Mm -hmm. and having a really difficult time finding safety and comfort. And so it's all about how do we help our clients to find a place that's comfortable for them in a way that works for them and recognizing what their brain and their experience sort of tells them that I know that when I get really busy, I don't really get that hungry and I can just keep going. And I have that temperament trait of persistence that I just keep going. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Even when it's not a good idea to keep going, I just keep going. And so I've had to learn, oh, wait, I still have to feed my body while I keep going, because even though I might not really feel hungry, if i you know paused and really kind of hung out a little bit i might find that i actually am hungry but i have to attend to that so that's just one of the you know yeah. many learnings i have some people when they get anxious or excited they lose their appetite and some people when they get anxious and excited feel really hungry mm-hmm. and so it's kind of important to know which one or which times you are one of those and attend to it appropriately. My mom died about twelve years ago now, and it was obviously a huge loss in my life. And my appetite just went away, mm-hmm. like just yes, as a sort of natural grief process. And after a, a month or two, a couple of people that I work with that are really close to were like, "Yeah, I think maybe your appetite isn't so great. Have you mm-hmm. noticed?" I'm like, oh. "Yep, yeah, I've noticed." And I'm I'm really like just making myself eat, and that could have been, you know, a slippery slope into sure. into. All kinds of wild eating disorder rides, but it's really knowing your knowing sort of how your your brain works. I Right. To sort of like having an owner's manual for ourselves. Like,
0: what does it and, say on page fifty oh, right. six? And that's just it. And what your page 56 says is different than my page 56.
1: Totally. totally. And if I try to apply my page 56 to you, you're like, what's that? So it is. Right. Like, I think that's critically important and super important as a sort of related aside for any clinicians working in eating disorders who have a personal experience. That can give you incredible insight. But your page 56 might not work for anybody else. Sure. So it's sure. really important to Think about that, but most important to, you know, take care of our own selves.
0: Right. And also, I mean, yes, to your point of the social platforms and we know how impactful that is in um, diet messaging, diet culture messaging, all of those things. But but that is the whole point is that what so-and-so put in their reel on Instagram, It that may not fit for you. And we just, so many people don't know to kind of step back and give themselves permission to just be attuned to what's going on for them. Exactly. Like, and really it so. might not even fit for
1: that person who put it in their reel on Instagram, right? Correct. It, I think we forget that So much of social media is a highly curated version of pizza, even though it seems like it's not. I think that's one of the fascinating things about particularly Instagram and maybe more TikTok. And particularly, I think we see a little bit of difference with YouTube, but like in Instagram and Snap and all the other Mm -hmm. sort of just image, you know, or brief clips, glimpses into my life, like people could have made 100 versions of that before they posted it. Right? Yes, yes. <laughs> and they lit it and they they did all kinds of things to it. They're curated versions. I think the data that, that are emerging now around the detrimental influence of Instagram and, and other social platforms is fascinating. And when you look at the same data around things like YouTube that are more more engaging, longer format, more learning kind of delivery systems, they don't have the same detrimental influence on body image because it's harder to fake it. The longer you go right in a 30 right. minute video, it's harder to like be a perfectly curated version of yourself. It's A lot easier in a 30 second or a 10 second or a two minute mm-hmm. video or even a picture. So right. it's fascinating. I think we'll learn a lot more. About yes. That.
0: Especially with brain development and teens right. and kids. Yeah. I'm just so glad we're having that conversation in a different way these For days. Sure. Yeah. You know, one of the other things as you were talking, I think about a lot is that it can be really frustrating for people with eating disorders that like we say, it's not about food and yet it's something that you have to attend to daily. So somebody, you know, somebody's an alcoholic, okay, maybe we can try to keep you out of a bar. This is kind of just a very, you know, simple example, but we have to eat we have to fuel our bodies. So that's yeah. a conversation we have a lot with our clients of, is it possible to relearn, you know, the pleasure of food and eating, you know, all of these things when it do have to surround yourself with it and figure it out. So I don't know if you can just speak to that a little bit. Just, I don't know. I think it just makes it that much more complicated for people and our patients.
1: Yeah, I think it is. It's fascinating. You do have to eat at like day in, day out, multiple times a day, over and over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's really exhausting when you have an eating disorder. And even sometimes when you don't, it's hard to, you know, fit all that in. So, I think it's it's interesting to think about how, you know, maybe for some people really getting reconnected with their body and really getting reconnected with, like you're saying, the pleasure of food is can be meaningful for them, particularly if they have the kinds of brain wiring that connect with food and that connect with the experience of food and, and really are jazzed by the, the texture and the taste and the smell and the presentation and the whole experience of food. And if we can reconnect people to the pleasure of it, that's fantastic. For other people, it might be, Reconnecting to the functionality of it. Here it is. Sometimes the science of it, just here's the functionality of it. That's really important. And maybe you'll never be super jazzed by the presentation of it and you'll never be a, a foodie or you'll never be, you know, so excited on a vacation to go to a specific restaurant. That's okay too. That it's okay to have the relationship with your experience of food that you have. And how do we reconnect you to what's true for you mm-hmm. without trying to expect it? to feel fantastic. I think that's something that, you know, I, I really admire a, a number of folks in the field, but one of the things that one of my biggest heroes, Laura Hill really describes well, and, and Laura's done, you know, all this amazing translation research using brain science and neuroimaging and functional MRI to think about how to talk about these concepts with clients, mm. that Laura really speaks to this, you know, eating, it doesn't always feel good, particularly in the recovery process. It feels pretty bad. And I think we, for a long time, and Laura says this too, we used to tell people, like, okay, if you just keep eating and you just, you know, do it for a little while, it'll feel better. And I think it will feel better eventually. But I think sometimes we set up the expectation that it'll feel better before it'll actually feel better. Mm-hmm. It's going to take a while to feel calmer and better and less anxiety provoking and more normal and less mechanical and yeah. more enticing and more interesting. That takes a while. So in the meantime, we need to establish, we need to help our brain to establish the habit. And there's all kinds of amazing you know, research coming out about habit formation and what our brains okay. do there. It sounds overly simplistic. Yeah. And. It's sort of beautiful in that there is some elegance to, if you do it and you do it again and you yes. do it again, and you do it again and you get support to be able to keep doing it. Wow. It actually is a little bit more comfortable mm-hmm. and then that little more comfortable builds on the next little comfortable and it gets to a place where it is pretty comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's part of how we have to talk about the process with clients that I mean, I've said for a long time, like if we had a better way to do this, we would. I I wish we had a better way, a more comfortable, less painful way I know to reestablish a positive. It's just not yet. And it's, you know, we, we have a lot more ideas on how to support people as they go through it. And it's hard.
0: It's just hard. And so just
1: normalizing that. Yeah. And that's worth it. It's so worth it. I don't think I've ever talked to anybody who's recovered from an eating disorder who says like yeah I wish I didn't do that wish right. I would have stayed you know horribly ill. Yes. Like people say wow that was the hardest thing I've ever done but I am so grateful that I was able to get through it and I so glad I did it and it's the hardest thing I ever did but it's the best thing I ever did right that's just so it's it yeah
0: to be worth it when you're in it you know clients say it's just you can't you can't it feels so hopeless right I guess yeah. it's just it doesn't it feels so far away so yeah. foreign and there's such safety for so many people quote-unquote false safety mm-hmm. in the eating disorder for clients that change feels scary and so I think you know again to normalize that for people who are listening too that sometimes it may seem obvious to us on the outside yes you want Want this change, but for the person experiencing that, that can be really threatening.
1: It can be, and I think that's where tapping into the strengths that people have to persist. Like people stay in things that are really hard and uncomfortable. Like graduate school is really hard and uncomfortable in many ways, and yet we have so many people and many of our clients who persist in the face of difficulty. That's you know how can we help people to tap into that? Like they have an amazing, robust ability to persevere and getting through the eating disorder is like, they'll need that. You know, people often, I imagine you've heard this too, will say like, I just want to do this myself. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't need treatment or I don't want yep. to do that treatment. I don't want to do a higher level of care. I just want to do this myself. And I have s- sort of switched what I say when I hear that to like, I'm so glad to hear Mm -hmm. that you want to do that. I'm so glad to hear that you have that inner voice that says, damn it, I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. I can do this. I'm going to do this on my own terms because you're going to need every bit of that tenacity and all higher level of care is really is people who are going to be there to help you to do exactly that. But you're going to be the one that does it. So I'm so glad you have that. And we are here to help you. That's what you need. That combination is what is going to get you through this eating disorder I love doing it on our own. Like, you know, it's like going outside in the middle of a pouring down rainstorm and saying like, I'm going to do it on my own. I don't need an umbrella. Like why nobody says the umbrella is unnecessary or like, I'm going to do it myself. They're like, yeah, give me the umbrella. Maybe they want a particular umbrella, but an umbrella seems like a good idea. (laughs) So, Uh I love that analogy. You know, higher level care is um, is an umbrella and it's raining really hard.
0: Yes. And that makes me think of how you said, you know, when you were experiencing it and treatment options weren't really there, or people, the research wasn't there. So people didn't really know what they were doing, perhaps. And that you said people said a lot of unhelpful things. I mean, there are so many cringeworthy, dangerous things that our clients hear that we hear, even as a person who's never experienced an eating disorder, but I am a woman in this world. So I know what it's like to navigate body shaming messages, you know, food morality, all these things that tell me how I quote unquote should feel about these things. And so being someone who hears that with an eating disorder is hella hard. You're dodging these landmines all the time.
1: Yeah, it is. There's so much weight stigma in our culture and so much fat phobia, so much internalized weight stigma and so much messaging and so much of that. It is, it's like a video game where you're like, (laughs) you know, take cover from the stuff Mm -hmm. falling, raining down from the sky. Mm -hmm. It is so hard. And that's where I feel like one of the things that's really seems pretty beautiful to me right now is this sort of counter-cultural response to to messaging and sort of the like taking back of messaging and phrasing and presentation and all kinds of things to say, like, no, this is who I'm gonna be and how I'm gonna be and how I'm gonna do it. And this mm-hmm. is what I how I'm gonna be respectful and how I'd like you to be respectful in the world and we could all maybe get along <laughs> in this big world. But I think it's that kind of fun countercultural piece that recovery can help people tap into like yeah you're going to try to walk through the world like we are exactly that we are suggesting that you walk through the world and you know have your little sort of shield or dodge all mm-hmm. of those comments and we are telling you we think that's going to be a better path like we think that'll be a more enjoyable peaceful path in mm-hmm. this world full of you know things that are going to get hurled at you it's pretty countercultural and that's kind of fun yeah. Just people like it's pretty fun to sort of disrupt a conversation when somebody's complaining about you know how hard it is to stay on a diet or somebody's saying something about somebody else's weight to be the one that says really, I, you know I I'm really kind of more interested in talking about how you guys are how you feel or what you think about that whatever oh. it is than talking about her pants or that right. photo or that food or your diet. Like, I don't know, there's more interesting things to talk about. Totally it's kind totally. of fun. It's a risky place, but it can be really empowering. Right. That it
0: is people. really badass. you know, and it, it's, yeah. it's funny because I'm sure you're the same way, but like people have come to expect that too. So my husband's like, okay, Juliet, we get it, you know, but, but like, you can't do it enough. Like, <laughs> You can't do it enough. There's a lot we're trying to counter here, you know. Yeah. yeah, sometimes, you know, I pick awkward
1: places to do it sometimes right. too, you know, like on an airplane when right. somebody does something ridiculous, you know, when you're in a tube hurtling through the sky, you know, whatever, hundreds of miles an hour might not be right. the exact right time to say to somebody you know I don't know what you think about that fat phobic comment you just made but maybe you could think about it differently like they don't really want to be sitting next to me for I love three it hours, but it's kind of fun and this is how yeah. change
0: happens though right I, yeah what yeah. do you think about the swing again specifically on social media to the body positivity movement and this is kind of how things happen we do this pendulum thing so but what are your thoughts on that
1: yeah I think we we're swinging really far. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I hope we don't come all the way to the middle. I hope we sort of stay somewhere, you know, swung mm-hmm. over in a place that says bodies are bodies. There are lots of different bodies. What if we took care of our bodies mm-hmm. and not, and by take care of, I don't mean like, you know, give them enough fruits and vegetables. I mean, Fine. Fruits and vegetables are great. I'm a dietitian. I love fruits and vegetables. <laughs> Fantastic. And there's so much more to life than Whether you eat fruits and vegetables and enough of them are the enough the right colors, right? But what if we really cared for them? And what if we expected a society that honored caring for our bodies? Like we had an expectation that we would get enough sleep. Mm -hmm. And we had an expectation that we would have access to adequate food Mm -hmm. and a variety of that. And we had a society that had expectations that we'd have adequate access to movement and that it would be fun to move and there would be opportunities that would be enjoyable to move. And we'd also have a society that would expect us to be able to have, develop, learn new, continue old coping skills. That's kind of the vision I have of like, what if we really did care for ourselves and each other by sleeping, moving, eating and coping well? Like, what if we had those four pillars in place? We'd be a like, beautiful, different place, right? That's, I think what we can help clients think about or every one of us should think about in in my little humble estimation of of what might help is, you know, how's my sleep? How's my moving? How's my eating? How's my coping? If you have the, you know, the support and resource that can bring to bear on those four things, your body's going to be what your body's going to be. That's it. And That's that's, I think sort of a body positivity place, like that's what it's going to take to be sure, positive. Sure. Like you need those resources. Obviously that is a tall order that there's a lot mm-hmm. of inequity and a lot of challenges in our society. And I think those are the, even the small pieces that we can start talking about with clients and each other, but it's not just all about like, Oh, I love my body. You can love your body. And are you resting it? Are you moving it? Are you mm-hmm caring for it? Are you, you know, helping it to manage through life's difficult things. So mm-hmm. that's where I, I don't love oversimplification in most cases, but that's where I love the, the good old, like four categories. If you're eating, moving, coping, yeah. yeah. you're going to feel pretty good.
0: And I was going to say that it, it is so simple, not easy, but very mm-hmm. simple. Yeah.
1: That's yep. a great point. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Anything that as a dietitian, that maybe kind of goes against the grain, any part of your philosophy or your, any thoughts that you have that maybe some dietitians would think is not popular, but in all of your learnings and your wisdom that you feel strongly about? And-
1: oh, I think I teach a whole class on eating, on eating disorders at the university of Minnesota. And it, it almost feels like a whole class on how to unlearn what you've learned. <laughs> huh. Yes. It's really it's open to all all majors at the university. I get a lot of nursing students in nutrition and psychology majors and kinesiology majors and pre-med and all, all sorts of health science oriented mm-hmm. majors, right? And I, I often say things that people are like, what?
0: <laughs> yeah. I didn't
1: that yet. Like, well, that's probably an important thing. Our, our health sciences curriculum might still be a little overly focused on the shoulds and the should nots and the do this and don't do this. And this is good. And this is bad. And I don't know, I, I don't know about you, but I imagine you have a similar experience that people don't actually do something just because we tell them to do that. <laughs> like here, I think you should do this. And they just magically go yes. do it. Like. It doesn't really work that way. So we actually really need to work with people on how they could do the thing that we want them to do. And so I think that's, there's a lot there that I teach in my class to future clinicians of all kinds of stripes. That they're like, oh yeah, that's more complicated than just telling somebody mm. to do it. And that is more more holistic, more robust, more has more inputs. That I think those are the things that that I sort of enjoy getting myself in a little bit of trouble over that I'll, yes. I'll be a, a group of dietitians who don't work in eating disorders at all. And and I am often, or even people, not dietitians aside, like that, you know, people who say like, oh, I can't have that dessert or that's bad. I'm like, really, why? Is it spoiled? Is it part of the salmonella recall? That just happened, <laughs> is that what it is? And they're like, You're a smart ass, uh, but it's oh, you know, it's, I love it because it's, it's so really, ingrained
0: in people. Yeah,
1: it is. We mm-hmm. spend so much time worrying about things that don't have a payoff and don't benefit us. So, mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. face, yeah. About things actually could. So yeah. I think I'm a little, I enjoy being in that that position to challenge people's beliefs a little bit.
0: Yes. Okay. So favorite myth about eating disorders to dispel? Oh, there are so many. I think my own
1: personal favorite myth, because it is really personal to me, but I see it clinically so much. My own favorite personal myth is that you never get better from an eating disorder. It's a lifelong struggle. And I am pretty sure I'm not an end of one. So I feel like I've talked to a lot of people who've had an eating disorder that people get better people get better. They go on to live full eating disorder, free lives. They don't have to think about food and weight and body and all that crap that the eating disorder makes you think about for the rest of their lives. And when I hear that, I think, oh, that person probably didn't get enough treatment and support or enough information. Like I get it that when I was ill, which is 30 years ago now, Mm -hmm. more than that. That we didn't know much and we had, you know, we didn't even know about brain science practically. So we didn't even know that, you know, some people were predisposed to these illnesses because of our genetic makeup, mm-hmm. that that we told people that. And I just don't think it's true. I know hundreds or, I mean, more than that, yes. I imagine at this point, people are better. Yeah. That I think is one of my most favorite myths to dispel. I'm so glad
0: you said that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cause we get, I mean, we get that question all the time and I kind of say like, I wouldn't, I'm not sure I would do this work if people didn't get better. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Like what's the point? Like, right.
1: I'm, not, I'm not helping you to like manage having an eating disorder forever. forever yeah. I want to help you to get better. And yes. Yes. Get well, and so yes. that's, Awesome. And some illnesses we do still have to help people manage. Sure. But this one we can actually help people get well. And yeah, there's still probably going to be the like you know pretty detail-oriented, persistent, you know sensory-aware humans that they always have been. It doesn't mean they still have an eating disorder. They might still be the like impulsive, a little chaotic, risk-taking humans they always were. But it doesn't mean they have to have an eating disorder. That's though, right. Well. I love dispelling that
0: one. Yes. And that for some people, when the stressors come up, you know, again, like you said, because of the brain and the way that works with habits and neural pathways, it may be that your in- initial instinct is to turn to some sort of symptom and yeah. you will have that pause or you can unlearn. I mean, that's the thing. I want people to feel hopeful about it too. I'm so glad you brought that up.
1: Well, and I also think that, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I also think that if, if eating disorder behaviors really helped us feel better, people wouldn't feel so distressed when they have one. Right. Right, that it doesn't actually ultimately help people feel better if people feel bad. Correct. And so it's really scary to think about not having those behaviors and not following through on those urges and compulsions and all of that. And it's not a pleasant thing. I, I mean, being personally, and, and also hearing, you know, from all the clients that I've seen over the years, the thousands of people I've interfaced with, like, these are really painful illnesses to have, right? Like these are not nobody gets up in the morning. It's like, Hey, I'm going to go get an eating disorder. That sounds awesome. Uh-huh. It's terrible. They're terrible illnesses to have. And so if they really were working, quote unquote, that like making people feel better, they probably wouldn't feel so bad to have exactly. one. <laughs>
0: exactly, and that's why I say that it's a false sense of control, yeah. power, empowerment, but I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone just say, you know, when I, they ask me what I do, I wish I could have an eating disorder, oh, right? And that's the other myth that it's just, um, mm-hmm. yeah, really, you wish you could live in a, a prison a mental prison day in and day out and you know have one of the most fatal illnesses there is it's just so conversations like this are just so important I think yeah. that like, like we said it's how change happens they could
1: have one of those just to lose weight like that's exactly. almost always the end of that sentence right like oh, I wish I could have one just for a little while so I could lose weight and I've had people right same as you have had people say that to me often on airplanes <laughs> and I say something like wow you know that's really interesting because the majority of people with an eating disorder don't actually lose weight when they have an eating disorder. The majority of people with an eating disorder aren't in a body that you would look at and think, oh yeah, there's my perfect way. So you want to get a deadly illness Uh to not accomplish your goal. Uh That Uh just seems like a, I don't know, misguided Uh idea. Uh And then they really wish they weren't sitting next to me. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like ding, ring the flight attendant bell. (laughs) I do do have one more question too, about, uh, you know, the intersection of race and gender and sexuality. And that's another, you know, thing we talk about is this is just for, you know, rich white girls Mm -hmm. just for eating disorders, you know. And so I treat males, people in the queer community, people of all socioeconomic statuses. So I don't know, just say something about that too.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. We spend a lot of time, uh, part of what I I do and, and many others in the eating disorder world, spend a lot of time on Capitol Hill talking to policymakers. About eating disorders to help them understand and increase the visibility of, of eating disorders as a public health problem and an increasing public health problem over the past year and a half. That's we always say, you know, eating disorders don't discriminate. They are completely bipartisan, multipartisan, whatever you want to say. They don't mm-hmm. discriminate. That these illnesses have that myth attached to them because of access to care issues which is a huge problem in our country that we need to do something about people need to be able to get care and there's all kinds of systems that we need to change in order to actually have that be a reality so it's a false it's, it's absolutely a myth it's a it's a false idea of who gets these illnesses it's really historically been who's accessed care and so yeah I've treated people at all walks of life that yeah. I can think of from all ages I mean all, you know often people accompany that with like, oh, it only happens to young people. Like, Uh oh, I've worked with people in their 70s and 80s, I've worked with people in their sevens and eights. Like it just really goes yes. all the way across the lifespan. And the sooner we can intervene with adequate interventions, that's the better that's off it. people are. And that's so nice. it's, yeah, it really is. We need better access. We need better recognition. We need less stigma. We need a lot of things. For each <laughs> <And>, sister. <laughs> yeah, we need all those things. And we can all influence change in those areas. That's it. And we need to keep encouraging people that you know, recovery is possible and that change is possible and you don't have to live like this.
0: Yes. I want to end on that because it's just, it's powerful. And where do you send people when they say I need help? I'm ready to talk about this. I'm curious about it.
1: I would say, I say a couple of things when I say, you know, if you have no idea where to go, what's in your community, go to the Alliance that's the the National Alliance for Eating Disorders is a great resource. They have a great treatment finder, findedhelp.com. The Alliance is a great resource for information and just getting a sense of what's out there. If you have an eating disorder treatment in your community, I work for Veritas and Emily program. We have sites all over the place. Go there, go call somebody, call an eating disorder provider. And I think that's the important part is that If you, you know, I'd love to be able to say, and I hope I can see the day where I can say, you know what, go see your primary care provider because your primary care provider will know how to screen and will know how to get you connected to the resources that you need. Maybe we'll get there someday. And some primary care providers are amazing Mm -hmm. at that. And many are not because they don't have the education. They don't learn that in medical school. They don't learn that in their training. They just don't have it. Mm -hmm. And they live in a fat phobic world with lots of weight stigma. And so they don't really know what to do, you know, and they don't really understand. How would they, they don't have the training. So they're going to be like my primary care provider, who was a lovely human being who said to me, when are you going to be done with this eating disorder? Oh,
0: and I was like, why? Well, oh, I, I haven't thought about flipping the switch off.
1: Really? I didn't, I didn't, I uh, didn't know I could schedule that, you know? <laughs> Golly, let me think about that. So, so I would love to be able to say, go to your primary care provider, but I I can't say that now. Now I would say the internet is an amazing place and it's a very complicated place, but from a a accessibility to eating disorder specialists, Google eating disorder specialists near me and you will get some options and call and ask some questions That's it. and just start. You might get somebody you don't like at all. It might not be the right fit. You can change. Start. Don't put it off. And that's the most important thing. You can hang out and think about it for a long time. You can pace back and forth in your house and wonder if you should make that phone call. Just make the damn phone call. Yeah. Because even if it's not the right place, it's a good start. That's right. And that can be a life-saving start. So do it because this illness is not gonna get you ready for help. That's the other thing that people say, like, I don't know yeah. if I'm ready. And like, don't wait till you're ready because the eating disorder has no interest in you getting ready. Get some help. Reach yes. out.
0: Thank you for the important work you do. Oh, you're welcome. I really appreciate this conversation. Yeah. So wonderful to meet you. Absolutely. You too. I'm so glad you're doing this.
1: Thank you so much for inviting (sighs) me.
0: So who you calling crazy? I think you mean human. We are removing the stigma, y'all. Say it loud and proud. Yep. I go to therapy.